Heavenly Father, we come to you now to receive from you your holy word. We pray, Lord, that, that we would, uh, yeah, that we would be open to receiving your word. We pray, Lord, that you'd be at work in us as messed up people. We pray, Lord, that you'd shape us today. We pray, Lord, that, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight, our rock and redeemer. Amen. We've got a massive passage here today. I don't know if I can do it justice. There's just so much packed into it, and it's, it's, it's mind-blowing. It's boggling. It's all these mixed images crossing over one another, but we'll do our best. But as we kind of come and think about this, I wondered, if, what do you think is the, the best battle scene that you've ever seen in a movie? I mean, there's some favorites, but I think my favorite would have to be uh, the battle of the Plenel Fields in Lord of the Rings. It's both simultaneously uh, the best battle scene in, in a book and in a movie. Uh, you've, got, you've got the dark forces of Mordor assaulting the terraced city of Minas Tirith. You can see the hordes there in that picture approaching the city. And there's only a few thousand men left to defend the city with all these, all these blokes uh, assaulting the city. There's orcs, tens of thousands of orcs and and others, uh, uh, including the Witch King, who is approaching the city and attacking it. And they started with a demoralization campaign. They assaulted the city. They made them despair for their lives. They started hurling, um, you know, catapulting uh, flaming rocks and stuff into the city. And then they started to attack from the ground, and they breached the lower level, forcing the people defending up into the next level. And they started to despair. They just started to give up and basically assume that it was a done deal. They were going to be overtaken. But then, when there was nowhere to run, nothing they could do except prepare to die in battle, on the horizon, a vast army appeared of blokes mounted on horses. It was the Rohirrim riding out to save the day led by their king on a white horse. You can see there that it's as though the clouds peel back and the light starts to show. And you can see their, all their, their gear glinting off the light. It's the light is appeared, the light is coming. And that, their king on his white horse led the charge down into, into the valley and they attacked the, the bad guys from the side and they... They attacked from their flank, and Aragon, with his forces, attacked from the other side, and they turned the battle in their favour, and they won the day. It's the epic kind of climax to the whole Lord of the Rings series. And in those last moments, you see uh, the true king who gets coronated, who gets, um, who gets installed. He takes his beautiful bride, and he starts a rule, a reign of prosperity and peace in the land after winning the battle. It's quite epic, and I'm not doing it justice, but I'm sure most of you have seen the film or read the book. You see, the great battles throughout history and in our fantasies, they, they're climactic moments. They're where the game changes. The good guys win, the bad guys are defeated, the country is saved, the pretender king is overthrown. Evil attacks, but good triumphs. That's a bit like our story today, where we're seeing this great battle play out. The Apostle John writes in Revelation about this massive battle and it looks like evil might just 
have the upper hand. But then it turns out they never had a chance. It's like the siege of Minas Tirith. The darkness is overcome. The darkness is, is expelled. The darkness is destroyed. And it's the kind of story that's typical of Revelation. If you've spent some time reading through Revelation, you get these powerful pictures of wild wonders, these crazy catastrophes going on all over the place. And it's hard in your mind to try and fit all these pieces together as the story jumps around from one picture to the next. It's meant to, uh, it's meant to make you think. There's mixed metaphors. There's imagery that overlaps. And for many of us, we're not familiar with this kind of literature it's a type of genre that was pretty common back in the day, but we don't really have a, a modern equivalent. Uh, they call it apocalyptic literature, and you'll find it in other places like in Daniel and Ezekiel and a, and a few other bits and pieces. A few snippets in the gospel get a, a few apocalyptic bits. But what do you do with it? How do you understand this kind of literature? And, and I've been trying to rack my brains for an easy way to understand it. It's, it's kind of propaganda, it's metaphor mixed with allegory, mixed with fantasy. I thought it's maybe a little bit like watching District 9, the, that film, you know, where you watch it and you're not meant to go, wow, this is a cool alien movie. You're meant to go, wow, wasn't apartheid terrible? It's, it's a metaphor for something. It's a, it's, I also thought maybe it's like a political cartoon, you know. It's... It's where you open the paper on the, on, the, on the morning and you find that funny picture that encapsulates some event that's happened in the, in the paper, in the news that week. You look at it and you get to see a representation. It's a representation of an actual event, but it's done in a figurative way. It's a caricature, it's a parody, it's amplified imagery. And as you can see in this example here, we have Barnaby Joyce with his head up on the wall as a, as a mantelpiece, over the mantelpiece. And, and the media being represented as a ball that shot him. Now, when we look at this, we don't actually think that took place, but we see it as a, as a picture of what happened when the media exposed Barnaby Joyce's affair and, and, his, and his, um, his pregnant mistress. And so the media there is represented as a ball, you know, bullish, you know, charging, taking down, uh, and, and Barnaby's up there as the trophy, as the, as the one that was taken down. But we can tell with this that it's a picture. It's, it's, it's figurative. And when we get to Revelation, it's a, it's a similar story. We don't... Uh, there's this there's bunch of characters and figurative pictures that are mashed together. And, and like with your political cartoons, if you looked at the headlines of the day, if you understood the culture, and if you, and if you understand when and where it was written, you start to understand what the pictures are telling, the story that it's telling. It all makes perfect sense. So with that in mind, we're, we're honing in today on, on Revelation 19, that second half of the chapter. It's part of that climactic and triumphant end to the book. You know, John's been laying out strange visions of angels and beasts, and he keeps telling the same story over and over, but he does it from a slightly different way every time, from a different perspective. And this passage today is one of those, those cycles that's building up to the beautiful end in the book. But before we get to that beautiful picture that we all know at the end of the book, there's destruction. There's war. There's a battle. Is it a real battle? 
Is it something that will literally take place? I'm not so sure. I mean, I think that God, I think it is a picture of real events, but God is trying to paint a picture of what it will be like. It's, uh, it's rather than an actual account of events. It's like our political cartoon. It's a representation of it. It's not the literal thing. This battle is very curious. In many ways, it reminds us of the climactic battles of a good action movie. But there's some startling differences to what you find in our own movies and books. So we're going to investigate the text. We're going to see this crazy description of a wonderful warlord. And then we'll have a look at the assembled army there. And then we'll hear about the battle preparations before turning to look at the brief battle itself. So let's look at the Bible. You can look with me uh, from, from verse 11, because it starts a vision. And, and John the Apostle, he peers into heaven. He, see, he saw heaven opened. And he peers into heaven, and he sees a fantastic white horse with a noble rider, a wonderful warlord there in splendor. And that rider turns out to be Jesus. If, if you look from verse 11, it said, then I, saw, thought, then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dripped, dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. You see this picture of King Jesus riding out to make war and to judge. Now, you might look at this and you go, well, how do you know it's Jesus? His name, we don't get his name Jesus anywhere in this passage. So how do we know that it's Jesus? Well, firstly, no one else could fit this description. Like, this, this character stands alone as only being able to be one person. But we also get some other hints where we look and we see that he's called faithful and true. And if you flip back in Revelation, you find that Jesus is called faithful and true. And we also see that he's called the Word of God. And you might, you might remember back to the first chapter of John, another book that John wrote, where, where Jesus is called in those opening verses, Jesus is the Word of God. So now that we know that this is Jesus, how is he described? He's sitting on a regal victory horse. He's, he's, he's sitting in a position of victory and he hasn't even started the battle yet. His eyes are blazing fire. No one can withstand his gaze. And, and he's wearing this bunch of crowns on his head. It just says there are many crowns. You know, elsewhere in Revelation, they talk about these pretender kings who have, you know, seven crowns or ten crowns. Jesus got so many crowns, they don't know how many are sitting on his head. He is the ruler. He is reigning. And he has a secret name that only he knows. Now, I was trying to think of a way to kind of describe this concept of a secret name. It's not uncommon back in, in that time. But, but for us, I was thinking it's like a bit like a password. You know, if you have a password for somebody, you, can, you have control, you have power. So if somebody gets your, if a hacker gets your password, he can, you know, get into your bank account or he can hack into your social media or he can hack into your phone. And it's kind of like that. 
but with Jesus, there's no secret password. But the idea is that he, that nobody can gain control over him. Nobody can even know his special name because it is secret, it is to himself. Nobody has a chance of having any control or power over Jesus because they can't even know his special name. We also see that he is, he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. His, this, is a, this is a callback to Isaiah. I'm sure you're picking up here, all these little hints about stuff are all callbacks to other parts of the Bible where we get pictures of what these things mean. And there's a throwback to Isaiah here with a robe that's dipped in blood where there's a king, I think it's Isaiah 63, I can't remember exactly, but, you know, um, there is a king who crushes his enemies and his robe is splattered with the blood of his enemies. So we've got Jesus, the Word of God, seated on a horse with blazing eyes, a bunch of crowns on his head and a robe splattered with his enemy's blood. Before he's even gone into battle, he's got their blood splattered on his clothes. Now, if you thought that was enough, you'd be wrong. There's more. There's more about this guy. If we keep on looking from verse 15, we see that from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh is a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Jesus has a sword coming out of his mouth. And it's a, it's a recurring theme. It's come up a couple of times in Revelation. And it's, and it's got something to do with the fact that Jesus is the word of God and that he has power by speaking. He decimates his enemies by speaking. If, if you remember that back to the very beginning, how did God create the world? He created it by speaking. He spoke and there was light. He ordered the world through his words. And we find out later that Jesus is the word of God. We find out that God created the world through Jesus. And we also realize that Jesus' verdict is final. Jesus' verdict, what he says goes. When he judges, when he, when he judges, his judgment is final. So he swings the sword of his mouth. But not only does he have a sword, he has a rod of iron. He dual wields, sword in one hand, rod in the other. Jesus rules with a rod of iron. And here we have this picture of maybe like a shepherd who guards his flock with a rod. He protects and subdues the enemies of the flock. Jesus will rule with an iron rod. I'd just like to take a moment here to catch my breath. It's, it's, this, is, this is crazy, this picture of this king seated on a horse. As Vodi Balcom says of this passage, he says this is, this is no sissified, needy Jesus. This is King Jesus in his glory. He's already in a victory stance, even as the battle looms. He's given royal titles that... Royal titles are normally given after you win the battle, not before. The enemies haven't arrived yet, but he's already got blood on his robe. So King Jesus, he stands ready to tread the winepress of God's fury. He's ready to crush out God's wrath. You know, like grapes that have to mature on the vine, you have to wait until they're full and ripe. 
and then you crush them for wine. God the Almighty has been holding back. He's been waiting. He's been waiting for his wrath to mature. He's been patient. He's been playing out his grand plan on the world stage. He has endured insults and dishonor. He has endured blasphemy of the world. The nations, the world in general, is collectively opposed to God. But he has waited and been kind and patient. But he's waited long enough. God has begun the harvest. God is ready to turn the grapes into wine, and it must be tread in the winepress. The grapes must be crushed and tread underfoot. And Jesus is the one who is going to crush the grapes. Jesus is the one who is going to unleash the wrath of God. He is ready. Jesus is there, ready. He has his royal titles. Now, if you ever want a justification for a tattoo, uh, this is your moment. Jesus has a tattoo on his thigh. It says, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And it's, and it's written on his robe, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now, sometimes in our minds, we can, we can miniaturize Jesus. Because as Christians, we approach God, we approach Jesus as our Savior, as our Redeemer, as the one who condescends to us the one who became humble for us. Sometimes we forget just how truly terrifying Jesus is. He inspires terror. I will, I'm glad he's on our side. I would not want to face him in a showdown. Yes, Jesus was humbled in the incarnation. He was born into the world clothed in human flesh. He was born as a baby He lived the average life of a chippy in the back blocks of Palestine. He had a bit of a following. He had religious teachings. And in his later years, he had a fair-sized following. But in the scheme of things, from an earthly perspective, it wasn't a big deal. He had a shameful death. He was crucified by the government. But the thing is that this humble ministry of Jesus on earth was when Jesus had put off his glory. When he had put aside everything that he, all the glory and honor that he was due so that he could come and live amongst us. But folks, the day is coming when Jesus isn't going to hide his glory anymore. It's going to be plain for the whole world to see. And that's what our passage is telling us about the day when Jesus shows the cosmos what he's really like. Jesus stands ready. That wonderful warlord perched on a white horse. Surely this picture must inspire terror and awe at once. This king is magnificent. But he's not alone. There's the assembled army. Just there with Jesus is a few other people. And I jumped over it before. If we go back to verse 14 and have a look, we see that with Jesus... The armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. So while Jesus is there, in all his splendor, he is accompanied by the armies of heaven. There's a whole host there with him. They're there on white horses, wearing sweet white robes. And interestingly, 
they're coming to a battle and none of them are dressed in battle gear. They don't have on their armor. They don't have their, their, their weapons. They don't have uh, any, any shields. They're all just rocking their pure white clothes. Now, I don't know about you, but if I was going out to battle, I would want to be protected. I'd want to have weapons. I'd be looking for some armor, but no, fine linen. And if you skip back to Revelation 7, we find out who these people are and why their robes are white. I'm just going to read for us. This is another vision of John's. After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation and from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb, another name for Jesus, before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And we skip down a little bit further. He said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. You see? This multitude wearing white robes are those who have washed their clothes in the blood of the Lamb. They washed their robes in Jesus' blood and they became pure and white. Are you catching that? Blood doesn't usually have the effect of making things white. It usually stains and makes things red. But robes dripped in blood become white. The blood of Jesus, the lamb, cleanses. It cleans. It purifies. The blood of Jesus washes away impurity. Whose impurity? Yours and mine. We get to be part of that great multitude. We get to approach Jesus with our filthy, rotten, dirty rags and Jesus takes them, washes them in his blood and cleanses them. He clothes us in purity. He clothes us in righteousness. Jesus takes away our disgrace. He removes our shame. He cleanses us from sin so that we might stand in the throne room of God and behold his glory. Where does the blood come from? Jesus isn't standing there with a drip in his arm, donating blood one milliliter at a time. Jesus' blood was given as a sacrifice. The lamb was slain. This blood is the lifeblood of Christ, poured out for you, poured out to make you clean. It gushes from his mortal wounds to wash away your sin like a flood. We put off our our filthy, dirty self, our sin, the old way of life, and we put on the robes of Christ, washed in his blood. And then we mount our white horse and we ride out with Jesus in victory. We stand with Jesus against the forces of the world. You and I, the white-robed people of God, stand with Jesus ready for the climactic battle. The armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. We turn up with Jesus to face down the enemy, not armed to the teeth, but standing as an assembled army behind our wonderful warlord, 
Jesus, our King and God. Do you realize that this is your position? Do you realize this is where you are when you are in Christ? Do you realize that when you become a Christian, you put on these white robes and you mount that white horse and stand with Jesus? You're in a place of security. You don't need to worry about protecting yourself. You don't need to worry because Jesus has got your back. You just need to put on a robe and turn up. We can stand with confidence because Christ is our King, because Christ is our Saviour, because Christ is our wonderful warlord. We can stand with King David who, who wrote this Psalm 27. I love this verse. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though a war arise against me, yet I will be confident. Because of David's position in God, he's able to face down an oncoming army. He's able to be confident when he watches the forces array against him. We too can have that confidence because we are secure in Christ. Let's turn our eyes to the battle preparations. While we stand, we stand confident with our wonderful warlord at our head, the, we're in the assembled army behind Jesus, the battle preparations are underway. And John looks up and he sees an angel that is standing in the sun, in on the sun, not quite sure, but not quite sure what the deal is, why he's in the sun. But he tells us about an invitation that he sends out. If you look at from verse 17, I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. So the angel is inviting carrion birds. So when he's talking about these birds that fly directly overhead, it's a reference to carrion birds. Uh, you know, your vultures, your eagles, your hawks that will come and eat dead flesh. The battle hasn't even started, but he's already inviting them to come and eat the flesh of his enemies. <laughs> They're coming to ask them to pig out. The opposing forces are going to need eating because they will be dead. It's a bit of a reversal of the usual order as well because it's usually humans that eat birds, not the other way around. And it's also another callback to Ezekiel chapter 39 where there's a very sim similar call put out to the birds and the beasts. And there's even this promise at the end. And you shall eat the fat till you are filled and drink blood until you are drunk at the sacrificial feast that I'm preparing for you. It's not a pretty picture. It's not meant to be pretty. It's meant to be quite unpretty. If you think about ancient battles where they would come and fight one another, they'd have the dead lying strewn everywhere. And the carrion birds would all come and feast on the flesh of their enemies if you didn't deal with the bodies quick enough. And here we have this picture that there's going to be a, 
They're going to need a lot of birds. They're going to need those birds to bring their mates so that they can come and feast on the flesh of all these dead guys. And while this is going on, the army is showing up. They're gathering against Jesus and his army. I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. Now, you've got to go back and read earlier chapters of Revelation to get a better idea who this mysterious beast is. But suffice to say that the beast and the kings are enemies of God. This is the forces of the world who are opposing God. They're not given specific identities, but we get this picture of all those who are opposed to God assembling in this great battle, small and great. So Jesus and his white army are on one side, and we've got the other army with the beast and the kings of the earth. We've got the heavenly army over here. We've got the earthly army over here. They're coming up and facing one another. And then the battle is about to begin. The stage is set. We have the wonderful warlord and his assembled army, white, the earthly army opposing. We're ready to go and it's over. It doesn't even begin. It doesn't start. It's finished. We're ready to begin the battle and then we get a recount of the fact that all the bad guys were killed and their their leaders were captured. Where's the story? Where is, where's, the, where's the, um, the, the tension, you know? The two armies fighting against other and it looks like one might win and then the other guys kind of get the upper hand and where's the tension? There is none. It's won before it's even start. The armies... I'll, I'll read the, the recount we have. You know, we've got these two armies ready to go and the beast was captured. And with it, the false prophet, who's in, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came out of the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. The armies assembled, prepared to fight, and they were instantly defeated. There essentially was no battle. It was all over before you could blink. It's actually a little bit anticlimactic. We wonder, where's the stories of valiant heroes? or Where's the tense moment where it seems like the bad guys might just win? That's not the story with God. God wins. Jesus wins. Where's that moment when the, when the main character is mortally wounded as he tries to win the battle? Well, there is a moment like that. There is a moment where the main character is mortally wounded, winning the battle, and it happened on a Roman cross 2,000 years ago. The enemies of God didn't know it then, but Jesus won the war that day. That was the day that Jesus overthrew Satan, sin, and death. That was the day that Jesus washed the robes of his white army. Jesus received his mortal wound at the hand of mere men in the plan and foreknowledge of God so that he would stand triumphant as the king of angels and men. 
Jesus hung on a cross, slain, bleeding, broken, beaten, bruised. He was humble, humble to death. And he said, it is finished. And in those moments, he won his victory so that you and I might be freed from our dark overlords. We throw off the shackles of sin and we spit in the face of death. We follow in Christ's train as we march onto the battlefield, the triumphant army who haven't bloodied any blades. We ride into victory behind King Jesus who judges and makes war. Jesus, his robe preemptively dripping him with blood of his enemies, captures the leaders and overthrows them. And he picks them up and throws them into the lake of fire, into torment and punishment. A just punishment for those who stand against the rightful king. So the leaders are dealt with. Who's next? Everyone else who stands opposed to God is destroyed by God on that battlefield. It's a bloodbath. There's destruction. God's wrath is poured out. And how were the rest slain? By the sword of Jesus' mouth. He cut down that multitude with his sword and the birds gorged themselves on the flesh of the slain armies. The birds who feast on death are satisfied. They suffered an utter defeat. They stood no chance. They became bird food. They thought they could take on Jesus? No way. It's hard to put these events into time and space. When will it happen? Where will it happen? I'm not convinced that this is meant to be understood as a literal battle scene. Instead, I think it's a picture of what Jesus' victory is like. He is triumphant, victorious. It's a figurative representation of his epic victory. Jesus' enemies have no chance. Despite the way that it looks sometimes, there's no way that Jesus in the white army can be overthrown. It's a done deal. Jesus wins the war. There is no alternative. Jesus always wins. So what does that mean for us? What does that mean for us who are still sitting here in time and space, going through the day-to-day, going to our jobs, living in our families, raising our kids, mowing the lawn, coming to church again? What does this apocalyptic victory mean for us? It means you're safe. It means that if you have put on the white robes of Christ, you are secure. It means that you can stand with Jesus opposed to the world without fear. But I've picked out three things that we can do because of the place that we are in Christ. We are ambassadors of the kingdom of God. We are in this world, in this place, as the light to the world. We are revealing God's glory to the world through our role as Christians, as the church. We reveal God's glory. We go into the world and we share the good news so that people can repent and believe and they can be saved from the bloodbath that's coming. 
And we don't need to worry about what people say. We don't need to worry about who's opposed to us. We don't need to worry about what the latest law that's been passed is. We don't need to worry about what people say they will do to us if we share the gospel, because we're on Jesus' side. We stand with him victorious. They might be able to kill the body, but they can't kill our souls because they're safe with Christ. Next, we put to death what is earthly in us. We live a holy life as members of that great white army. We put off sin and we put on Christ. As we were talking about last week, we push and we, we yearn and we reach for our sanctification and holiness in Christ. And we get ready. We get ready for Jesus' victory parade. There's there's several places throughout the New Testament where we get this this picture of what it's going to be like when Jesus comes back, riding on the clouds of glory, triumphant. We're caught up in his train. It's like those ancient emperors of Rome when when they would defeat their enemies and they would ride back into town with this triumphant procession of people singing and praising with the, with the captives in their train, those, those prisoners of war, God returns, sorry, the emperor would return in triumphant procession and then we get a picture that, that these processions are nothing in comparison to the triumphant procession of Jesus at the end. And when he comes back, we get caught up with him, drawn into his train, celebrating, reveling in his victory. But we've got to be ready got to be ready. Be prepared. Stay alert. Be ready. So Jesus is victorious. And we're swept up into that victory. That great victory for the battle that was almost non-existent because he was that powerful. There was no real chance for the bad guys. We have no need of fear. We can hold our head high and wade into the fray knowing that Jesus has won the war. Part of what we celebrate here in the Lord's Supper is that Jesus won the war. His body was broken for us. In humility, he gave up his life. His blood was shed for us so that we could be made clean, 